Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. The first step on the road to freedom is that a person must desire to be free. Let me say it again. The first step on the road to freedom is that you have to want to be free. This may sound like an unnecessary statement because we assume everyone must want to be free. After all, who in their right mind would want to remain in any sort of bondage if they had the opportunity to escape? Yet when we actually look more closely at the human heart, we frequently find just the opposite. Since freedom always demands radical change, many prefer their chains to the risks of freedom. This attitude can be found in believers and unbelievers alike. I'm going to focus particularly on how the Lord brings us to Jesus Christ as a Savior, how he draws us. I'm talking, of course, about the title, Divine Discontent. I'm going to look at it from that side today. Only when the pain of change is less than the pain of remaining the same do many of us choose a new course. Is that familiar? has to get so bad that I finally open up to the fact, hmm, maybe I need a change here. Thankfully, God's commitment to our freedom is far greater than our own. God's commitment to your freedom is greater than your own. He wants you free more than you want to be free. He's determined you will be free more than you're willing to be free. He's going to see that you and I are free so that we can inherit our promises, so we can fulfill our calling. Aren't you glad it's up to him? Because if it was up to you and me, we'd quit along the road. We wouldn't get there. It's his determination that's our strength. And when he looks at us and sees the wonderful plans he has for our lives, and because of his love for us, he refuses to leave us in slavery. He wants us to be free to possess those plans. And though he never reaches in to change a person's will against their will, he never reaches in to change a person's will against their will. He does at times actively work to influence their choices, particularly when salvation and spiritual freedom are at stake. He will guide our circumstances, restrain demonic deception, and grant spiritual revelation until we have the capacity to choose freedom. Whether we do or not is up to us, but he can be very persuasive. In today's lesson, we'll see him working this divine discontent into the descendants of Jacob because it's time for them to leave Egypt. Very, very persuasive. He leaves us our freedom. You and I have to make the choice. He won't make it for us. He won't come in and like you're a robot, turn some switch inside you and make you obey. Sometimes we pray for people that way and we think, well, God, I'm I'm praying for this person, just save them. And the Lord wants them saved, but he's not going to suddenly, and the person loses their freedom and chooses Christ automatically. He doesn't do that, but he sure is persuasive. He knows how to bring divine discontent. He knows how to make people tired of their chains, tired of their bondage, tired of where they are, make them hungry for more. And that's what God does. He puts the heat under us and begins to pressure us to make the right choices. Father, would you open the word today? And would you teach us, each one, to understand your divine discontent Lord, we're so thankful that you love us enough not to leave us where we are, but to press us forward and to see that we inherit the promises you have for us. We love you, Lord. You're a faithful father, and we trust you today. Open the word and grace me to speak it. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll look at chapter 1, and I I will read parts of it briefly and summarize others. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And then Moses lists each of the 12 sons. And his point in this section is to say, look, at only 70 people who were direct descendants of Jacob came down from Canaan into the land of Egypt. And then later on we'll discover, 400 years later, that that 70 people has turned into nearly 2 million. God has indeed blessed remarkably over these 400 years. Verse verse 7 
But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I'm sure he knew the reputation. I'm sure he'd heard about Joseph, but he didn't respect him. He wasn't grateful for what he'd done. His attitude toward the Israelites had changed. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. He's feeling fear. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities. That's my, the translation, uh, strong fortified cities, Pithom and Ramesses. What he did was very strategic. When you look at the map, Goshen is the uh, easternmost wedge, as it were, of the Nile Delta. And he put two cities, one on the east and one on the west, which were fortified cities and would have military uh, battalions stationed in them, as well as cities, but they were really forts on either side of the people of Israel. Fearing an insurrection, fearing that now they, their loyalty to Egypt was, would, would not be there, he put two military outposts on either side of the people of Israel uh, so that he would be able to quell any kind of insurrection. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. You couldn't uh, stop them by hard work. They simply kept prospering. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field and all their labors, you know, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. And then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other poor woman was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. Women were not a military threat. They could also be married to the Egyptian men. So leave the women alive, but strangle the, the boy babies. But the midwives feared God. They had a conscience. They understood this was disgustingly immoral. And they were not about to do what was disgustingly immoral. They feared God more than they feared the Pharaoh. And they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives, as far as I can tell, lied to Pharaoh because the Hebrew, and said, Because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. They basically, this man's pretty stupid, and uh, he, what's he know about birth? And so they said, um, what happens is these Hebrew women give, uh, have, are so vigorous that they have a very short labor. I mean, by the time the word gets to us, the baby's out. And uh, the whole family's gathering around holding the kid, and you can't strangle a kid with a family gathering. And so we're just not getting there in time. That may be some truth to it, but I, I suspect it was a work slowdown. The call would go out, you know, and they would just take their sweet time getting to that house. And by the time they were there, whoa, there's the baby already born and isn't he cute? And so they had the fear of God and they did not obey the Pharaoh. And look what it says in verse 21, or verse 20. God was good to the midwives. He, he was delighted with their lie. And the people multiplied and became very mighty with at least with their obedience. And it came about because the midwives feared God that he gave them more and more children. As they refused to kill the children of Israel, he blessed their households with more children. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, obviously the midwives weren't helping, saying, every son who's born you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you're to keep alive. He enlisted the entire population into a genocide. What is going on here? What's going on? It's time to leave. It's time for Israel to leave Egypt. The moment has come where they're to inherit their blessing. 
They are now to move to Canaan. They are to become a great nation there. God will bring through them one day the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The plan must move on. It's time to leave. God drove them down into Egypt with a famine. He now drives them out with a bitterness of oppression. He seems to have to move them by hardship. It takes a famine to get them there. It takes slavery and oppression to get them out of there. It's called divine discontent. At least I call it that. And I see divine discontent at work in my life. I see divine discontent at work in your lives. It's, this is not something that just happened. Now, fortunately, an, God does it in, 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 in different ways in the New Testament. We don't make bricks, uh, well, I hope, uh, now. But and I'll show you how he works uh, in the New Testament sense in a little bit. But let's look and see what we just, uh, we just read about. Let's see that principle of divine discontent here. First of all, God knows the choices people will make before they make them. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Moses is talking to the Lord at the burning bush, and the Lord is explaining what's ahead of them. And he says in verse 19, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. I know this Pharaoh. I know his heart, and I know he will not release you. He knew what Fer- that Pharaoh would not release his people until he was forced to do so. But he also knew this, that Israel would not just leave because he asked them to. They, too, had to be compelled. Do you notice this? Had he sent Moses to walk down the street in the area of Goshen and just say, Thus saith the Lord, time to go, time to leave. We're going to all leave Egypt and go on up to Canaan now. And had there been no problems, no slavery, no harassment, no difficulties, how many think that Israel would have said, cool, let's go. Let's leave this prosperity and our beautiful homes. We've been here a mere 400 years. Uh, what attachments might have formed? So let's just uh, pack up and leave these, all of this and we'll go out into that desert, into that God-forsaken place and we'll camp. How many think they'd uh, line up for that? I don't either. In fact, neither did God. <laughs> he didn't think they would either. Isn't it interesting that when the Lord tries to bless us and the Lord tries to lead us to freedom and the Lord tries to bring us to the places, to the next steps in our lives, we often have to be driven. We don't have the good sense to just obey the voice of the Lord, but we have to be pressured by circumstance. It's human nature. It's the human heart. But I will say the more we mature in Christ, the smarter we get, the more we choose to listen to his voice, not have to be driven like a horse with a bit and bridle in our mouth. More on that later. Here's how he did it. Here's how he created that desire in them to be free. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, we see him changing Egypt's attitude toward them. Hold on to Exodus 1. We're coming back. But turn to Psalm 105. I want to show you a rather remarkable statement. It's an explanation of this moment in Israel's history. And starting at verse 23, look what, look what the word says. <clears throat> Psalm 105, verse 23. Israel also came into Egypt, and thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. That's what I just read you, chapter 1 of of Exodus. And then it says in verse 25, he turned their heart to what? Hate his people. Turned whose heart? Egypt's heart to hate who? And who did the turning? God turned Egypt's heart to hate his people and to deal craftily with his servants. Now, there's a little bit of an ethical problem that comes to mind. How does a holy God put an unholy attitude in people? How do you do something like that? Well, I don't think he did. I don't think he had to. I think all he had to do is keep blessing Israel and the jealousy and the competition and the fear arose rather naturally in the human heart. Have you ever noticed that when God blesses you, 
It is not always met with cheers and, and excitement by others. It can be met with jealousy and bitterness, all sorts of competition. That was what was going on here. The more they prospered, the more Egypt grew afraid. You're going to, you're going to rise up in an insurrection at some point, and you're going to attack us. Secondly, he let Israel discover they were slaves because bondage isn't always obvious at first. Look at verse 10. There's a, there's a remarkable statement at the very end. Pharaoh is, is saying, let us deal wisely. If there's a war, if we are attacked from without, these Israelites may rise up as a fifth column, turn against us, join our enemies in the war, defeat us, and then it says, and depart from the land. Now, I thought that Israel was a guest in the land of Egypt. Didn't you think that? That they were there uh, freely, they had come down freely, they had been given this place to live, and they were welcomed. And I'll bet they thought they were guests too, up until this moment. You know, Somewhere bef long before this, apparently, the hearts of Egypt had decided, you're not leaving here. The bondage, the chains, had been put on them very subtly. The slavery had developed as an attitude in the hearts of the Egyptians. We're not letting you leave should you want to leave. When people are in bondage, at first, in the early stages of bondage, we often aren't aware that we're actually slaves. Many people think, oh, I can kick this habit anytime I want. I'm not a slave. I can stop when I want to. I had a stubborn old great uncle, and he smoked cigars. And uh, his wife one day said, you know, that thing, that cigar is going to kill you. You couldn't stop if you wanted to, George come from a pretty strong personality line. And he says, oh yeah? Poof, and he just shot that thing. In the, and, he, and for one year, he didn't touch one. And then he picked it back up again. And then he died of cancer. <laughs> he thought his willpower had beat it. He thought, I can just stop this when I want to. But there's something about addictions, there's something about death, there's something about the enemy that has chains around us we don't even know are there. And it takes a work of God to let us see those chains. When you start praying for people who don't know Christ, when you start praying for people who are in addictions, You'll be surprised, sometimes the, the, what God does in response to your prayers is make the situation worse. You start praying for, for, for someone who's addicted to such and such, and all of, uh, like for example, alcohol, and they don't think they are, they just think they, uh, they've got a control on this, it's no problem, they just enjoy it, it relaxes them, and etc., etc., and they go through all of the, the little happy talk about alcohol that people always do, and then you say, oh God, uh, free them. Next thing that'll happen, they'll get a DUI. They'll get fired from work for alcohol use. All sorts of things will happen. You say, how did that happen? I prayed for them to be freed, and it got worse. Amen. It's called what? Somebody got has it. Divine discontent. Say that with me. God is causing them to be discontent with their bondage. He's making the chains show. Many people don't know they're in bondage until the heat goes on. And then all of a sudden when they try to move, clank, they realize, hey, wait a minute here. I didn't know I was a slave to this thing. I had a young man come up just in tears. He says, I'm addicted to sexual material. And he says, it's going to ruin my marriage. It's going to ruin my life. He said, I, I've got to get this thing out of me. And I said, the best news in the world is, you know that. 
That's the first step. First step is knowing you're in slavery. You've got to want to be free. You've got to understand the problem if you're coming out of it. People often have all sorts of illusions about how they really are and how free things really are. Thirdly, verse 14, it says, they made their lives bitter with hard labor. He, God let life in Egypt grow bitter. Chains can sometimes be comfortable. Pleasurable habits and addictions, we can like them. Uh, Hebrews 11.25 says there's a season of pleasure in sin. There's a season. Actually, the Greek word is very interesting. It's the early season. The, the word is. It's a, the early season of sin is pleasurable. The later season is not. Proverbs 14.12 says, There's a way that seems right to a man... Seems right at the time, right in my own mind, but the end thereof is, say it, the end thereof is death. There's a way that seems right. We think things are, this is the way, but the end of it is death. We can be very deceived, very deceived. He let life grow bitter to break that deception. You're not going to like it here. You're not going to like slavery in Egypt. He waited for them too long for freedom. There had to be a desire in them, a passion in them to be free. They that hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. You've got to want it. Something has to happen in our, in our will, in our, in our heart, to want this thing if we're going to be free. Uh, verse 23 of chapter 2. It came about in the course of many days that the king of Egypt died. I suppose all of Israel hoped for relief, but oh no, the next one was worse than the last. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Now, they began to pray. Isn't, isn't hardship a wonderful thing? It is the greatest stimulus in the world to a prayer life. I mean, people say there'll always be prayer in schools as long as there's tests. <laughs> hardship is a good thing. I mean, hardship is what drives us to pray. And so they begin to pray and call on God asking for freedom. And then it says that their prayers, their, their bondage rose up to God and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that he's up there in heaven and he suddenly says, what's that? What do I hear here? Is that groaning? Where's it coming from? Nile Delta? Make that larger, would you? He's not looking for the source of the groaning. It means when God hears a thing, what does it mean? He's going to do something. And I also think it means that Israel knew he heard them. You've had prayers where for all the world you prayed and nobody but the paint heard you in the, in the room. Right? You know what it is to pray and feel absolutely no connection. Nothing happened with God as far as I can tell. I just moaned in private. And then you've had other prayers where you knew that you knew that you knew God heard you, right? How did you know that? I don't know, but I just knew. I could really tell. I believe that's exactly what that verse means. They prayed and called out to God, and he heard them, and they knew it. They're, they knew their God had heard their prayers. He assured them he would help them. And then he sent a prophet to give them hope. And Moses shows up, and he he says to them, well, the Lord spoke to him there in chapter 3, verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Tell them I care. And so I said, I will bring you up out of the of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. He gives them a picture of freedom. God does that with us too. He hears our prayers. He assures us of help. And then he says, now I'm going to show you where I'm going to take you. I've got a wonderful plan. Here's where we're going. 
and he begins to breed that wonderful divine discontent in our lives. How many would say, I know divine discontent. I've had a case of it, at least one. How come you needed divine discontent? Because you're stubborn as me, huh? That's why I need it. <laughs> I've sure had my cases of it. Here's how he creates the desire in us to be free. Just like Israel, we too must discover we're slaves. We too must want to be free. Until you want it. Until you want it, he leaves you where you are. There has to be a passion. There has to be a longing for God's promises. You've got to want these things. And so often we float kind of content right where we are. Just nothing seems to change year in, year out. We just stay on a plateau. And God in his mercy at some point begins to put the heat under us and begins to bring those kinds of issues that drive us to prayer and thank him for it. Thank him that he does not leave us in that kind of indifference. We hear his promise of freedom and we cry to the Lord for help. Now, I want to show you how the Lord works this divine discontent in the hearts of people now, today. And so turn with me to John chapter 16. Jesus describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what he does in people's hearts. When you start praying for someone to find Jesus Christ, you can count on this taking place. Let's see what it is. Verse 7, John 16. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, ascend into heaven and sit at the Father's right hand, then the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you at a new level. There's a new baptism, a new power that's coming to assist you in all that you do. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning three things. What are they? Sin, righteousness, mine has, and judgment. Three things. Say it again. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And who does he convict of this? Who's the world? Everybody, yeah. You can count on this. You can count on this. The Lord Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of these three things. You won't find people you'll talk to that haven't had these convictions. God does this in everybody's heart. Let's, and I'm going to, let me follow on down and then I'm going to show you what I think they mean. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me, verse 9. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Let's start with judgment first. The Holy Spirit comes and he convicts the human heart today. He creates divine discontent in our hearts. Making us realize we're in bondage. Making us long for a Savior. Making us long for eternal life. The Holy Spirit does that around the world. He's telling people the devil and those who follow him are headed for eternal death. Notice that? The ruler of this world has been judged. Everything in this world, everything of this world, is dying a day at a time. You can feel it. You can see it. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. Look in the mirror. Where did it all go? It's all, somebody said it slid down here. A day at a time, you're getting older. You know, if you don't think you're getting older, have children or, or, or grandchildren, and watch how rapidly you go from that moment of birth, and all of a sudden, my granddaughter's six weeks old. She was just born, and now she start, we're starting to wonder if she's going to outgrow stuff. Wait a minute. 
You could just hold her like this, and now all of a sudden she's outgrown. What happened? Just the passing of time. Everybody in the world feels this passing of time. Everybody in the world looks in the mirror and goes, <laughs> I'm pulling up my wrinkles, saying, if I just had a little plastic surgery here, we could race. And how about the world itself? Can you see it dying? Can you see this planet aging? Can you see the ecology? Can you see the thing going downhill? All sorts of strange things are just happening to our planet. You can watch it sort of struggling along. And anybody who knows it, astrophysicists will tell you, this thing has got a shelf life. And there's a point in which this planet's going to go out. It's going to explode. Go, the whole sun is going to collapse upon itself and there'll be an enormous eruption. It's all going up in flames. Now, if you are complete, if your world is this world, if your hopes are in this world, if you're composed of nothing but this world, you are dying a day at a time. Your hopes are dying a day at a time. There's nothing but death for the future of this planet. And the Holy Spirit's creating divine discontent in the entire human race, saying, you're dying. Now that sounds like a mean thing to say, but why does he say it? Because he loves them, and he doesn't want them to die. He wants them to have eternal life. Let me show you a picture of that uh, big explosion at the end. It's kind of fun. I like to do this just to be gory. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. It's almost to the book of Revelation. You got three books of John and then Jude and then Revelation before it. Verse 7. Peter says, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. That's exactly what the astrophysicists would say too. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then down to verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then Peter says, Since these thi all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, the of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But we're looking for his promise, a new heaven and a new earth. The Holy Spirit saying to people's hearts, there's something wrong with the bondage I'm facing in this world. I'm shackled to a dying planet. My future's dying a day at a time. I'm getting older. My body's dying. Everything's decaying around me. The Holy Spirit bears witness to that. Secondly, righteousness, Jesus says, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer, referring to his ascension into heaven. He says the Holy Spirit's going to somehow take his ascension into heaven and witness to the, to the hearts of people. The Spirit of God is going to say that Jesus has broken the chains of death by rising from the dead. And he will take his followers with him to heaven. Jesus says, wherever, wherever my word is preached, whoever hears this truth, the Spirit of God will witness to their hearts that though they're dying, though their dreams are dying, though this planet's dying, someone has escaped death. And it's me. He says, I have risen from the dead. I have broken the chains of death, and I have ascended into heaven and right to the right hand of the Father, and I take with me my followers. Those who take my hand, those who reach out and grab a hold of me, I take them off this dying planet, and I give them eternal life. I take them with me right into eternity. The Holy Spirit bears witness. He creates divine discontent, agitation in people's hearts. But the gospel comes and says, take my hand, I'll lift you out of this. Now you see people with divine discontent all the time. In fact, it is an absolute plague in America. People are on so much medication they can hardly see straight. 
We're calling it all sorts of depression and everything else, but frequently it's an anxiety. It's a fear. It's worry. For people who, as they get older, it's a constant alcohol use where they're trying to forget the advancing years, their impending death. Someone said that 75% of the psychological problems of men over 50 are directly result of their anxiety over their impending death. And we think of it as a horrible thing. And yet, could it be the ministry of the Holy Spirit bringing divine disconsent, saying, Aren't you, are you tired of holding on to this planet? Buying a new truck won't solve your problem. Another bass boat isn't your solution. A facelift won't do it. You're chained to this sucker and it's going down. You've got a ticket on the Titanic and they may be serving nice food in the dining room, having a party in the ballroom, shuffleboard on the deck. But there is an iceberg coming. And your anxiety is nothing more than your intelligence. You figured it out. You're going, oh my gosh. I'm dying. This is going down. But the Holy Spirit's also telling you something else. Jesus has risen from the dead. And are you tired of your chains yet? He says, I have ascended my righteousness, my holiness, my purity. I have broken the bonds of death. I've ascended into heaven, and I take my followers with me. You don't have to die with the planet. You don't have to stay in Egypt. Take my hand. I'll take you to the promised land. And the third thing Jesus says that the Holy Spirit does in his divine discontent is to convict us of sin. He says, sin, because they don't believe in me. Not all of this, just, the Holy Spirit is not the one just scolding us for all the bad things we do. Oh, he does convict our hearts, certainly as believers, uh, and all of that. But he's, his main point is not to tell people, you're bad because you did this, you're bad because you did this, you're bad because you did this. The main point of the Holy Spirit is to say, you're dying and you're not laying hold of Jesus Christ. You fool. Grab his hand. That's what he's saying. That's the heart of sin. The heart of sin is that we missed the mark. That we've made a terrible mistake. That's what the word actually means. Hamartia. We missed the mark. Like you wonk and you just hit somebody instead of the target. You missed it. Sin is that we missed it. And the Holy Spirit's saying, you missed it. Take his hand. He's saying, I was born, you and I were born into a dying world and we're dying with it. If I choose Jesus, I can escape. I want to show you one more passage and then I'm done. John chapter 3. I'm going to just start by reading verse 16, but I'm... Headed to some others is the most famous verse, I think, in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not die with his dying planet, but have eternal life. For God didn't send Jesus Christ into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved. He sent him to save us. And he who believes in him is not judged, He who does not believe is already in trouble because he's part of a dying planet and he's dying with it day by day. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. People preferred darkness. When God's revelation comes, when Jesus Christ comes, People walk away from him rather than toward him. Why? Well, he goes on and explains why. For everyone who does evil hates light, God's revelation, Jesus Christ, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be reproved is actually corrected. People don't come to God because they don't want to change. 
There's something innate in the human heart that says, if I give my life to Jesus Christ, he's going to make me change. The answer, of course, is you bet your bottom dollar he's going to make you change. As in break off chains and as in make you the man or woman you're supposed to be, as in give you ministry and fruitfulness, as in cause your life to get on track and actually have purpose and direction, yes, that's the, he is going to change stuff dramatically. But here's what the devil tells us. The devil says, oh, you don't want to be a Christian. You don't want to come to God because if you come to God, he's going to take away from you something very, very precious, something you really value. You know, let's say I'm an alcoholic and I got this bottle and I just know that I give my life to Jesus. I got to give up my bottle. And this puppy is what, this is my comfort, man. This is my help. This is how I get it through the day. You, take, you can't take my bottle away. And if I come to Jesus, my bottle goes. Yeah, it does. And now you'll have to be filled with the Holy Spirit and find the comfort and the deliverance and the peace and the boldness that you've been turning to a liquor for, you're going to find it in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not taking your bottle away and giving you nothing. He's taking your bottle away and giving you something that doesn't destroy your personality, ruin your marriage, destroy your, your capability at work, but now makes you a free man, a free woman. He's trading you one thing for another, but his is life. Some people have visions of, if I come to Jesus, he's going to make me a, a, a cornball, like some of those people I, I see on TV, or Pastor Steve. <laughs> I have to be a nut like him. And he'd never do that to you. <laughs> I, I think some people think, you know, if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to put on a pith helmet and I'll go to Borneo as a missionary. If you did, you'd like it. Or I'll have to put a sandwich board on and stand on the corner of 320th and Pack Highway and it'll say turn or burn on one side and get right or get left on the back. And I have to wave at cars when they pass. People don't come to the light because they fear they're going to get corrected and changed, that God's going to do something bad to them. He's going to reprove them. They're afraid. That's, Jesus says that's why people don't come. It's not ignorance. People don't not come to God because they don't, they don't believe in him. They don't come to God because they don't like him. Because they have a misconception of God. They don't get it straight. The devil has lied to them and they believe a lie. That's why people don't come to God. Yes, he'll take stuff away. But he'll trade you. Life for death. Freedom for bondage. Purpose for, for meaninglessness. Passion for depression. He'll trade you, and you'll like the trade. And then Jesus fill, finishes this, and he says, But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Pardon me, I, I can't get away from King James. Others want answers to life's most important questions and are willing to pay any price to get them. Some people have a boldness in the way they approach life, a fundamental integrity. They want to know the truth, the truth at any price. Now, I don't think that's the majority of people. I think the majority of us tend to run away from the light. But there are people who have the boldness to say, I want to know the truth. Those of you who are like that, you've been through every religion in town. <laughs> you've tried everything. I mean, you, you've gone from one thing to another trying to find the truth. I think of, uh, of a conversation I had this summer on our, on our mission in, in, uh, in Wapato. Uh, one of the men of the church there was telling me his story and he said, uh, I tried every religion I could find. And he named probably five different things. He said, I went through them all. And he said, one night I was sitting up at three in the morning. And I was just, 
so agonizing and depressed. I said I could hardly stand it. And I was, I was reading the Bible. And he said, I called out, I believe it was about 3 or 3.30 in the morning. And I called out and I said, Jesus, I give up. I give you my hope, I give you everything. I give you absolutely everything. And he said, all of a sudden, he said, I began to feel tingly on my head. And he said, it went down through my whole body. He said, I was just on fire. And he said, then all of a sudden, a language began to burst out of me, and I began to pray in this other language. And he said, I, I was afraid to stop, so I kept going until 7 in the morning when I figured I could call my sister and tell her what happened to me. There are those who come to the light, who seek the light. And God just draws you step at a time. Because you already got the divine discontent. You've already got a good case of it. You're hungry to know the truth. You're not running from the truth. You want to know the truth, whatever it is. You're the minority, in my opinion. But there are, you are out there. God will draw you to saving faith, just as he drew Abraham. He'll lead you step at a time until you understand. And your heart will lead you right to Jesus Christ. But let me say this to those who are the ones who run from the light. God's mercy doesn't abandon even those enslaved by a history of bad choices. There's somebody sitting here right now, and you have run from the light. You have compromised every time. You've made the wrong choices for a whole lifetime. Your character has been molded by choice after choice after choice after choice, and here you are just about incapable of making a good one anymore. The Holy Spirit, when the gospel is preached, and when the presence of the Spirit is strong, will take and will free you momentarily. And even if you've got a horrible history of decisions, even if you've been one of these who ran from the light at every point, you've been stubborn and pushing the wrong way, God will open a moment for you and reach out and say, take my hand and you can come out of here. Now, right now, as we're, we're closing, is there anybody who you've got a case of divine discontent? You understand that this planet is dying. You understand you're dying with it. And right now, as I'm talking, the Holy Spirit's telling you, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You don't have to die with this planet. You don't have to be extinguished. The Lord can give you eternal life. And somehow, you know I'm telling you the truth. You know it's true. Now, what you know and what you choose are two different things. You can know it's the truth. And that's the Holy Spirit's job, but your will is still your own. He will not reach into your heart and make you choose. You must choose, but he will empower you to do so. And in fact, he'll even give you the faith, the very gift of faith. That's what's being given right now to us as we hear the gospel. Would you bow your heads with me a moment? I just want to ask this question. I want to open a door. Anybody right now, you say, I've got divine discontent. I've also got that gift you talked about. I know that Jesus has risen from the dead. I know he's ascended into heaven. And I know he takes those who believe in him with him. And I intend to be one of those. I intend to choose Jesus Christ. As my Lord and my Savior, I intend to take his hand. I am not going down with this planet. But I'm going to live in a new heaven and a new earth with him. And you know the door is open. You know you can make that choice. Who wants to say today, today I make that choice. I'm not, I'm not running from the light. But I'm choosing to come to the light right now. Yes, God bless you, sister. And God bless you, brother. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Who else wants to make that precious choice? The door's open right now. The Spirit of the Lord is here right now. This is an opportunity. Please don't pass it up. But it's your choice. Yes, God bless you, sister.
Anybody else? I'll just wait. Holy Spirit, please continue to do your work. Yes, I see your hand tooth. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. You'll never be sorry. This is eternal life. This is how we go to heaven. This is how we get off this planet. This is how we come to the light. All right. Let's pray, church. If you raised your hand right now, please pray this with me. We're going to put our hand in Jesus. We're going to do just what we talked about. You're giving your life to him. Don't worry about where he'll take you. It'll be wonderful. Just put your hand in his, and he'll take you there. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the light, for sending your only begotten Son. His name is Jesus. I believe in him. Jesus Christ, I trust you completely. I put my hand in yours. I do not run from you anymore. But I come to you. Be my Lord. Guide my life. Form me. Make me into your child. Jesus Christ, I bring much sin. My main sin is that I didn't believe in you, that I ran from you, that I resisted you over and over again. I deeply regret it. But today, by your grace, I say yes to you. You died for me. You've paid all my sin. You have cleansed me and cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. Thank you. I will praise you. I will glorify you forever for all you've done for me. Right now, I'm yours. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, just a moment. Put your hand on your heart if you prayed that prayer for the first time particularly. Anybody's invited to do so. But what I want you to know is Jesus said, when you come to me, I fill you with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God literally comes inside our bodies, right into our very spirit, and joins himself to us. And I want you to know that. I want that to be kind of something we seal right now. And I'll just pray freely. Lord Jesus, you promised our birthright. You said we would have out of our living, innermost being rivers of living water. We would have an abundance of your sweet spirit. And I pray for each one, particularly those who raised their hands, but for all of us. Thank you for rivers of living water, for life within us, for your guidance, for your strength, for your peace, for your correction, for your comfort, for your healing, for all that you do within us. And we just declare before you, it is by your strength, dear Holy Spirit, by your comfort, by your guidance, by your training, that we will indeed fulfill our calling. We will indeed be the people we're called to be because of you within us. Let Lay hold of us and never let us go for all eternity. Thank you that you surely will. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. If you prayed that, would you say amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.